World Cups hinge on small things, and the deeper you go in a competition, the smaller these small things become. The further you go in the competition, the bigger these small things become too. Take what happened at the toss between Sia Khaleesi and Owen Farrell in the final in Yokohama four years ago. These strange events and their significance were picked up at the time by former Lions coach turned Supersport television pundit Swayce De Brain. In this week's podcast, I speak to De Brain, a man who notices the small things, but who also realizes that the big things matter too. This is what Swayce had to say about the upcoming World Cup in France. And this is what Swayce had to say about Sia and Owen and the French referee Jerome Garces in 2019 and why what happened at the toss before the Rugby World Cup final and why it had repercussions. These repercussions could have caused England to lose the World Cup final. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. When former Golden Lions head coach Swayce the Brain was in the first few weeks of becoming a supersport rugby pundit four years ago, he made a provocative and, for some, a compelling observation. It was the first of many. At the start of Rugby World Cup final day in Yokohama in 2019, something grabbed his attention just before the game. The brain noticed something odd as Sia Khaleesi and Owen Farrell waited in the stage-managed, television-driven silence for the French referee, Jerome Garcés, to toss the coin. Farrell, who was standing on the referee's left, had his feet well apart. He had his hands behind his back. He was looking intently at the space between his feet, not engaging in eye contact with either Colissi or Garcés. That's funny, thought De Bruyne. With hands on his hips, Colissi was standing on the other side of Garcés. He was eyeballing Farrell in a quietly menacing way. Although betraying just a permissible touch of arrogance with those hands on hips, Khaleesi looked calm. He looked intent, ready for the job at hand, which, as his body language suggested, was to win a Rugby World Cup final. He was singularly impressive. In this little off-the-ball incident, Khaleesi's stature grew, figuratively speaking, as Farrell's got worse, he shrunk. Garcés tossed the coin in front of him, and when it fell to the Heineken-branded carpet, he stepped forward a couple of paces to collect it, returning to his former position between the skippers. He turned briefly to Khaleesi, later to Farrell, and asked Farrell what he wanted to do, as he had called correctly and won the toss. Except Farrell wasn't in a position to answer, because he was momentarily confused. He even appeared to ask Khaleesi something. You can't hear exactly what this was on the clip, but Khaleesi didn't reply. He remained silent and intimidating. Farrell's confusion continued, because he didn't seem to know where he was in relation to the pitch, so briefly was unable to explain to Garces where England would kick to, where actually George Ford would kick to, and in which direction England would play. 
in a discernible but self-contained way, Garces was amused. You can see him smile. Eventually, in this choreography of confusion, or to be more accurate, the confusion on one side of the halfway line, Farrell communicated his intentions to the referee and Khaleesi. The two captains shook hands, Khaleesi maintaining eye contact throughout. He walked away from the coin toss first, what Debrain later dubbed or referred to as, quote, managing or controlling the situation. The referee and England's captain followed as Khaleesi led them away. Many, many thousands of kilometers away in Supersport's Randberg studios, the brain told his fellow pundits and his anchor, Owen and Kamani, that after witnessing what he had, the omens were good for a Springbok win in the final. Some thought his analysis of Farrell's obvious disorientation was weird. Some simply thought it was bullshit. Some thought that to base the entire edifice of his analysis on such tiny foundations was rather like watching a rhino climb onto a matchstick. It was asking for trouble. Quote, What I saw then and what I talked about became more and more significant as time went on, the brain told me in interview. I can see winners on a certain day. I can see the little things and the triggers. These little things add up. Two negatives can become three and four, and suddenly they're five. The same with the positives. They can also snowball. In a way, predicting the Springboks were going to win the final wasn't that difficult a prediction to make. Identifying that Farrell wasn't engaging in eye contact and was staring at the yawning emptiness between his feet wasn't the only bit of information that DeBrain was basing his prediction on. A pundit he may be, but he's also a highly intelligent and experienced man. He does his homework, and he speaks to people behind the scenes. He knew, for example, that Kyle Sinclair, the Harlequin's tighthead, was concussed in the England semi-final victory over the All Blacks, what De Brain rightly calls England's final. De Brain thinks that there's no ways that Sinclair should have played in the final, although, of course, he was desperate to do so. The fact that he puked in the England dressing room beforehand confirmed De Brain's view. When I asked De Brain what he would have done had his name been Eddie Jones and not Swayce De Brain, he says that there's no ways he would have allowed the Quinn's man to take the field. He's had experience of head injuries, he says, and they're very dangerous. He likens concussion to a glass of water containing a high proportion of sand. In the way you need to allow the sand to settle at the bottom of the glass before you can consider drinking it, you need to give the brain time to recover. The brain says he knows what he's talking about here, and he knows what he's talking about because, while playing for Glenwood Old Boys back in the day, he was involved in two concussion incidents. Quote, You can strap an ankle... You can deal with a tweaked muscle, but to risk a head injury is flippin' suicide. It's just stupid. There is a brotherhood of international coaches and a code of honour amongst them, so De Bruyne is too much the professional to criticise Jones directly. There is, however, an implicit criticism of Jones, 
in his insistence that Sinclair shouldn't have taken the field in the final. As it happens, Sinclair didn't last more than two minutes anyway, being concussed by Maro Itoje's elbow in attempting a tackle on Makazola Mapimpi. Sinclair was replaced early on by the Leicester Tigers' tighthead, Dan Cole. England didn't scrum well at the beginning of the match, which is a polite understatement. Much of this had to do with Cole being under immense pressure at tighthead. It was a pressure that rippled through the entire England pack and which led to early mistakes. There was a rampantly speculative pass after he broke off the base of a losing England scrum by England eighth man Billy Vunipola. Ben Youngs, the scrum half, badly misjudged a blindside pass which bobbled hopelessly and a little embarrassingly into touch. Courtney Laws, playing on the flank, made a mistake. So too did Marco Vunipola, Billy's loosehead brother. A backward step can be a dangerous thing in rugby. England went backwards from the beginning, most notably in the scrums. One backward step leads to another and, it can seem, that going backwards can last forever. It becomes more than simply losing ground, it becomes losing a quarter, a half, an entire match. A kind of doom loop or death spiral. The clock is ticking forwards but you're moving with increasing momentum in the opposite direction. But rugby is nothing if not an interesting game because there is a way in which the scoreboard both tells the story of the match and utterly fails to tell the story of the match. What I mean here is that after 20 minutes in the 2019 final, despite England going backwards into the day before, South Africa were only 3-0 ahead, thanks to a Andre Pollard penalty. And let's not forget, he missed his first kick too. In a deeper, more profound sense, however, their lead, what we might call, say, a contingent lead, or a provisional lead, was already compelling. It was far more than just 3-0 on the scoreboard. They were already laying the platform for the two later tries that followed. We couldn't see it then, but we see now that the softening up by the Springboks was to have profound consequences. To think that England went backwards because of a chain of events initiated by Garcés, who tossed a coin into the air above some Heineken branding, and that, ironically, Farrell called correctly. Calling correctly, however, was irrelevant, because the England bus was half an hour late in getting to the stadium. Sinclair shouldn't have been playing, and Eddie was having none of it. Owen, being captain, was perplexed, and to use a word I like using in my podcasts, because it has such an old-fashioned Jules Verne-type swagger, discombobulated. Farrell was so discombobulated that for a second or two he didn't know where he was. And that's just it, isn't it? England, for the first 20 minutes of the World Cup final in Yokohama in 2019, didn't know where they were. They didn't know where they were because they were nowhere. And because they were nowhere, they didn't know where they were. This is what we know as a vicious cycle, and for England, it was a very vicious cycle indeed. Given the vagaries of international sport, given the luck of the day and the bounce of the ball, it is important to stress that anyone can end up nowhere. 
This is what makes punditry and previewing such a hazardous and empty task, and why I encourage you now not to take any notice of it, particularly now that all the bribe-boars are going strong, and the talk show hosts are opining, and everyone is frantically podcasting as if their lives depended upon it. Yes, England were pounding down the road to nowhere in Yokohama, but it might just as easily have been the box, or France, or the All Blacks, or Ireland in the weeks to come. The pressures in World Cups, particularly the knockout games, are so immense that the word immense scarcely does them justice. They bend your head and pickle your brain and turn your nerves to jelly. It needs strong wills not to buckle under pressure. You need to be like Seer or Dwayne Vermeulen, who was such a manier in the final, or like Cheslin, who put on his slick tyres and weaseled like a meerkat through holes in the England defence that only he and no other person on earth could see. When he was coach of the Golden Lions, says De Bruyne, he made sure to project calm to his players, particularly in the hours directly before a match. He tells the story, for example, of his Lions skipper, Warren Whiteley, coming to him before a Super Rugby semi-final against the Highlanders at Ellis Park in 2016. Whiteley was in a good space and so was the team and he said to Debrain, quote, I can see you know we're up for this coach and they were. They beat the Highlanders 42-30, five tries to four and so entered the first of their three Super Rugby finals. As a coach in the important hours before kickoff, Debrain was always careful as to when and where he appeared and what he said when he did so. The last thing you want, he says, is for a dressing room to become a casualty ward. He always set the trend with the Lions, he says, standing in the change room to greet the players as they walked in. He didn't say much, just a few well-chosen words, or even what he calls, quote, a confirmation word. Less is generally more for a rugby coach, in word as well as instruction. Keep things simple and transparent with the players, he says. Don't overburden them with too much. Although the Lions lost the 2016 final to the Hurricanes in Wellington a week later, Whiteley and DeBrain learned from their apprenticeship. They were smart to begin with, but became more streetwise through the campaigns of 2017 and 2018. Whiteley was careful not to be a flea in a referee's ear, but he was adept at offering running commentary on the field of play. His shtick was to compliment the referee, irrespective of the decision. If the whistle went against the Lions, Whiteley would pipe up like a hyperactive schoolboy and say, quote, Good call, sir. If it was for them, he'd be equally congratulatory. Man, we've got a really good ref today, he'd charm. It was a win-win for both Whiteley and the referee. I'm pleased to say that our interview about De Brain's early days as a pundit and his thoughts about this year's World Cup didn't plunge down a rabbit hole marked referees. He did make a couple of points, though, and one of them was an implicit acknowledgement that although the rhythm of a match might be marred by constant referrals, the TMO makes life better for everyone because it increases the percentage of correct decisions. He makes the additional point 
that South African rugby history might have been very different had the TMO been operating in 1995. He was behind the book posts in the semi-final reign at Kings Park in the match against France, and he has no doubt whatsoever that the French scored a try right in front of his eyes. The Springboks might yet play France this time round. Perhaps the great wheel of rugby fortune will come around again for a French team who are the classic Gallic blend of piano players and piano movers and surely one of the most exciting teams in the tournament. The books are a tuneful blend of marimba players and marimba movers themselves. De Brain doesn't say much about them, although his contacts in the camp tell him that the boys in green and gold aren't thinking much beyond tricky Scotland on Sunday week. As far as Gregor Townsend's team is concerned, De Brain doubts that they will prevail by simply running at the box for 80 minutes. Sooner or later they'll have to get acquainted by engaging up front. With their bench strength, De Brain thinks that the Springboks might just have the edge, although in fairness, he is not a crass man given to steamy predictions. A Springbok win on Sunday was implied rather than obviously stated. After his excellent post-injury showing against Wales and his similarly impressive appearance against the All Blacks, South Africa will be captained against Scotland by Khaleesi, the man who stared Farrell down. De Brain is a huge Khaleesi fan, a fandom which has deepened over time. Sia, says Swayce, has grown as a rugby player, a skipper and a person since he looked at Farrell as though he were a blemish on the good name of rugby. The brain, says Khaleesi, used to answer questions briskly, brusquely almost, almost telegram style. Now he's more comfortable, his answers are longer and more thoughtful. With his injury woes of late, we are lucky that Sia is there. With Sia at the helm, the confidence levels in the Springbok camp are extremely high. While he loves analysing the god of small things, Swayze also knows, as we all do, that World Cups are won by big players putting in big performances on the biggest stage. Think the 2003 World Cup final in Sydney, where Jones's Wallabies were at home to Clive Woodward's England. Both had beaten fancied neighbours in the semi-finals, England beating France, Australia beating New Zealand, South Africa, remember, had gone out in the quarters to the All Blacks, think Kamp Staldraat, and the final is often remembered for Johnny Le Drop Wilkinson's brilliance. But spare a thought for Martin Johnson, the England second rower in the final. Spare a thought for Vermeulen in France. We can burrow down into the small things all we like, but sometimes knockout matches are won by big performances by big players. Think Peter Omani, think Brody Retallick, think Anton Dupont, think Courtney Laws. There are some big names loitering out there. Although I have been at pains to avoid making predictions in this podcast, I can finally keep from predictions no longer. In this case, they aren't mine, and shouldn't be mine. They are de Brains, and in fairness to him, they aren't predictions so much as reflections. Given that we have spent a fair whack of time talking about England, to them first. De Brain says, 
that he does worry about their tight five. Quote, I would be amazed if they won the World Cup. There are too many holes there, he says. A more rounded side by half, he says, are Ireland because of their structure and shape. Quote, their structure carries them, he says, of Ireland. For me, they have the best structure in the world, and that structure has been in place since previous coach Joe Schmidt. Two weeks ago, Debrain says, he was very hot for the All Blacks, seeing them as the most dangerous side in the competition. After their heavy defeat against South Africa in the warm-up game, though, he isn't so sure. He raises the possibility that they didn't play at full capacity against South Africa at Twickenham last weekend, but then dismisses the thought. Book sides never play at 50%, and knowing this, the All Blacks wouldn't have allowed their focus to slacken either. The men from the land of the long white cloud play the men from the land of uppity farmers, overpriced coffees and chic motorcars in Friday night's mouth-watering opening game. If I understood De Brain correctly, he's ambivalent about the French. Like the Irish, they have never won a World Cup, and you wonder about how the additional pressure of breaking the duck weighs upon a side. Quote, with the French crowd behind them, they can be unbeatable, he says. But come at them, and the crowd becomes quiet. It's like a funeral. Elsewhere in the draw, he likes the look of the South Pacific sides in Argentina, who are the most improved teams in world rugby in the last two to three years. Quote, With Fiji and Samoa, their set play has improved so much, he says. They've benefited by being part of Super Rugby in the Pacific. With Argentina, they could just be a surprise package, with one of them even getting into the semi-finals. Previews, which I've always thought of as the lowest form of journalism, comparable with paparazzi photographers and tabloid stings, are of course useful for one thing. They're useful for filling up the empty hours with a scaffolding of speculation. It's like counting the sleeps to your birthday when you're growing up. Previews give excitement shape, and they make the time before kickoff flow just a little bit more quickly. Soon, the waiting will be over. There will be new controversies to have opinions about. There will be different people to fluke on social media. Wherever you are in the world as a South African, it will be time to dust off the green and gold, find the nearest pub, and go and watch your team. Swayce will be in the Supersports studio, doing his best to be fair-minded and positive, bringing us things we watched but somehow didn't see. He has a coach's eye, and Supersports coverage is immeasurably better for getting him on board, as his recent analysis of Marnie Lubok's kicking technique has demonstrated. Forget ESCOM, forget the recent elections in Zimbabwe and next year's elections here in South Africa, Forget that the commodities boom has petered out and so taxes aren't going to be flowing into Treasury's coffers as they did in previous years. Forget all that. It is time to get behind the bocker, hold thumbs that Marnie's got his lucky kicking boots on and shout yourself hoarse. Shout yourself hoarse and get drunk by all means, but don't forget the small things. Keep an eye on them. They happen at the strangest times and in the strangest places. 
World Cups have been lost for less. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. 